Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, how cooling brown fat could starve tumors of glucose and learning lessons from record-breaking heat waves. I'm Benjamin Thompson. Cancer cells are notorious for their ability to divide and divide and divide and divide and divide and, well, you get the picture. But this ability requires something important, fuel. Here's Yihai Chow from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Cancer cells, one of the most distinguished features from healthy cells is that they have a different metabolic program. They are very hungry for sugar. Cancer cells are gluttons for glucose, burning through buckets of the stuff to make the energy and metabolites they need to thrive. And this insatiable appetite for sugar could represent something of an opportunity. What if you could starve tumours of glucose? For inspiration, Yihai turned to another type of glucose-loving tissue, brown fat. What it does actually is help us keep our body temperature when the environment is getting cold. So brown fat is in our body like irradiator to produce a lot of heat. When we're cold, brown fat burns through blood glucose and lipid molecules to help keep our body temperature up. And this gave Yihai an idea. I was curious to know what if we put experimental animal that have a tumour to the cold to active brown fat, let the brown fat take a lot of glucose and then create a competitive scenario. And maybe tumour have no much glucose to take. So that's what Yihai and his colleagues did. They turned to mice engineered to grow various types of solid human tumour. Then they kept the mice at a cool 4 degrees Celsius to activate their brown fat and monitored their tumour growth. We tested many different types of cancers, especially those ones are very difficult to treat, like a pancreatic cancer, liver cancer. So by putting animals into cold, that is plus four degree, a few weeks we saw very potent anti-tumor effects. Tumor grew much slower, okay? 
they seem to be less invasive as well. This is a very good sign, and they live longer, by the way. The team showed that cold exposure inhibited growth in the different tumor types, and for one type of cancer, colorectal cancer, the survival of the mice almost doubled compared to mice that were kept at warmer temperatures. And it wasn't just the cold. The brown fat definitely seemed to be playing a role, as the same tumor suppression effect wasn't seen in mice that had had their brown fat removed or inactivated. In fact, Yihai's team tested the role of brown fat in a variety of ways. They showed that mice in the cold had lower blood sugar levels, and that the activated brown fat was taking up much more glucose than the tumors. Increasing overall blood sugar levels in the mice reversed the anti-cancer effects. Indeed, when we give high glucose drinking water to mice, tumor growth largely restored. So that's really supporting hypothesis. Reducing blood glucose is one of the mechanisms, but potentially not the only mechanism. For example, the team showed that in some cases, genes involved in glucose uptake were downregulated in the cold mice tumors, suggesting it might be a tandem effect of the brown fat using up available blood glucose and tumors not being as efficient at taking it up in the first place. Yihai says there are other things to investigate too. Because when fat breaks down, you know, produce heat, you also have a lot of metabolites and you know a lot of other. Growth factor cytokines required for tumor growth also be changed. For now, I can only see the competition as a mechanism. But maybe future studies will actually discover many more mechanisms behind. But although the exact mechanism is unclear, Yihai was keen to see if he could reproduce the effect he saw in mice in a human cancer patient. And so he enrolled a person with Hodgkin's lymphoma, who was between chemotherapy cycles, in a pilot study, and asked her to spend time in a warm room and a room kept at twenty-two degrees, which, according to Yihai, should be cool enough to activate brown fat. She was then scanned to see what effect this had on her brown fat and tumor tissue. In the warming environments, she did have actually. Brown fat activation, maybe some other mechanisms, cancer active brown fat. However, when she moved to the cold environment, so her tumor glucose uptake was much more reduced, and the brown fat signal became even more boosted. So there was, of course, one patient. We cannot make any conclusion, but we want to relate this thing really exists in humans. That's the point we try to make. Maria Univer, who researches cancer biology and metabolism at the Francis Crick Institute in the UK, and who wasn't involved in this work, was intrigued by the study, but pointed out that it raises a number of questions too. So, first of all,、uh, tumors are different. So, it would be very interesting to see how these tumors that they、uh, saw an effect on do they switch to other. Types of nutrition, right? So, do they use more amino acids, for example? Do they use more lipids? What happens to the tumors who originally rely on other sources more than glucose? And we know those exist, right? And how deep in human patients you need to go with lowering down the temperature and for how long to have an effect on on tumors? Already, given the fact that they already don't have much fat, perhaps, and that they're Condition of the body is already affected. 
Maria also wants to know how this method compares to attempts to starve tumours of glucose using calorie-limited diets, which has attracted a lot of research. They don't compare this, but perhaps it's a more efficient way to lower glucose level down than using the calorie restriction, for example. And so there are recent studies demonstrating that indeed decreasing glucose levels in the diet, like calorie restriction, can have effect on tumor progression. But it's still not a very clear picture. It's, the picture is quite complicated because different tumors can respond differently. It's clear the metabolism is complicated. And there's lots to learn about how lab efforts to starve tumors of glucose could translate into the clinic. But Yehai thinks that with proper testing, if the effect that he's shown is found to be relevant in humans, it could form a simple and useful extra weapon in the arsenal against cancer. You know, in this study, we want to present a concept for a new cancer therapy. We want to make sure this is human relevance. For the future, that needs to be uh, carefully studied by recruiting a large number of patients. Uh, to see code in combination with what kind of therapy would produce most beneficial effects and to see which type of cancer is much more suitable for this type of therapy. And we have no idea at this moment. So we want to do that together with the clinical oncologists. That was Yihai Chow from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. You also heard from Maria Univa from the Francis Crick Institute here in the UK. To read Yihai's paper, look out for a link in this week's show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about the record-breaking extreme heat waves that have affected many parts of the world and what scientists are learning from them. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Dan Fox. Some 300 years ago, a group of people paddled through the remote icy channels of the Tierra del Fuego archipelago at the southern tip of South America and landed on a windswept island. There, they established what researchers say is the world's southernmost human outpost before the Industrial Revolution. The site is located on the southern edge of Hornos Island in Chile. There, the researchers found the remains of a half, a pile of seashells, two harpoon points and a large number of bones from sea mammals and birds. Radiocarbon dating suggests that the site was probably a hunting camp that was occupied for a short period between 1428 and 1803. On one of the island slopes, the researchers also identified the world's southernmost tree. The team say that this plant marks the limit beyond which trees cannot tolerate the harsh environmental conditions of the world's extreme south. Read that research in full in Antiquity. Standing on the edges of a canoe or paddleboard and jumping up and down can propel the craft forwards, and researchers have figured out how. The team behind this work created a simplified model of a canoe subject to a vertical force that represented a person rhythmically pushing down while standing close to the canoe's stern. The model showed that the canoe's bobbing creates its own waves, and when the downwards push is timed right and alternated with a slight forwards and backwards nudge, the canoe can surf on its own waves at speeds of up to one meter per second. 
This isn't the most efficient mode of locomotion, with no more than 17% of the energy expended on bobbing translated into horizontal motion. But the authors speculate that in competitive rowing, the bobbing produced by athletes could help give a canoe a slight extra push. Bob along to Physical Review Fluids to read that research in full. Last month, here in the UK, records were smashed, as areas baked in temperatures of over 40 degrees Celsius. The first time this has been seen here since measurements began, beating the previous record set just three years ago. Around the world, it's a similar story too. Climate scientists have long warned that extreme heat and extreme heat waves will become more frequent as a result of climate change. But these events are happening faster and more furiously than expected. Reporter Alex Witsey has written a feature article for Nature about these events and what researchers can learn from them. And she joins me on the line from Colorado. Hi, thanks for having me. So when we talk about extreme heat or extreme heat waves, what do we mean? What's the actual definition? There's a bunch of different ways you can define extreme heat. It's, you know, how much higher your record high temperature is for that particular day. Heat waves can be defined by, you know, how many days temperatures are above the normal temperature. So extreme heat is anything in a number of ways in which the temperature records shatter and a lot of those records are all falling. So what's the picture around? the world then? What have we been seeing? There's been a lot of heat around the world for many years, and it's getting much worse. So one of the events that just kind of shattered scientists' expectations was a huge heat wave in the Pacific Northwest here in North America last summer. That was absolutely off the charts in terms of how hot it got. Canada set a national temperature record multiple degrees higher than it had ever seen anywhere in the country and all around the world too. So China's been having a huge heat wave in the last week or two. Japan in June-ish went through some of the highest temperatures it's seen. There was a massive heat wave in India and Pakistan earlier this year, also the last couple of years. So basically every summer, wherever you are around the planet, a lot of these are coming, as you said, faster and more furiously. And obviously there are a variety of impacts of climate change, many of them incredibly serious, of course, but extreme heat seems to bring a particular set of consequences. Yeah, it's deadly in a lot of different ways from some of the other consequences of climate change. Extreme heat, I mean, it kills you. It causes people to have heat stroke. Literally, just physically, our bodies can't handle it. So there's sort of the, how do you respond in the day? How do outdoor workers survive? How do people who don't have air conditioning survive? But then there's also these societal consequences, especially on infrastructure. I mean, we've heard about the runways getting soft at Heathrow. We hear about rail lines having to shut down because the trains aren't certain if they can run on the tracks because it might be too hot. You've got electrical grid overload, and this becomes really crucial in super hot areas where the electricity companies start rolling blackouts or brownouts, as we call them here in the States, where they throttle back because there's so much demand on the grid. And then people aren't able to use fans or air conditioning or whatever is available to them in terms of cooling off. Our entire societal infrastructure is woven in and can be affected by this. And of course, heat waves have been studied for a very long time, right? And the trend is towards more of them and them becoming worse. But these record-breaking events that have been seen around the world seem to have confounded expectations maybe and happens sooner than predicted. Yeah, you know, I talked to a bunch of scientists who deal with extreme heat and extremes and what constitutes an extreme for this story. And all of them said, you know, we were 
expecting extreme heat. We were expecting extreme records, but the sort of record shattering aspect of it, when you actually see it in front of you and you see it happening, it really sort of crystallizes what a lot of warnings that climate scientists have been putting out for the last, you know, many, many years. It's one thing if you have a day that's maybe 0.1 degrees warmer than your record in the past, but when you're looking at large portions of a country, like during the recent UK heat wave, absolutely shattering records. So like full degrees hotter than previous records. That is what is astonishing the scientists. And what's maybe caused the discrepancy between the, we're expecting this in the decades to come, and, you know, actually this is happening right now? We sort of get into that question of what do scientists know and what do they not know? And I mean, Climate scientists know a huge fraction of what we need to know. I mean, it's simple physics, right? I mean, there's more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The global temperature is going up. The extremes are going to be hotter. There are sort of nuances to that. There are ways in which the climate models don't 100% capture everything about our future in extreme heat. For instance, how we're using the land, how we're irrigating land, that can sort of moderate these extremes that we might be seeing. So it's sort of like we know most of it, but we're still sort of fine-tuning exactly how bad it can get. And among the climate scientists I talked to, again, they mostly said these things are going to happen and they're happening now. And we anticipated these. But the fact that so many records are being broken in so many different ways all around the world so quickly, it's like the time scale just kind of moved up. Hmm. And so scientists of course, are scrambling then to learn what they can from what's been going on in the last few months and years. What have these extreme events taught scientists about the way that things are going? What have they learned? There's sort of two answers to that question, I think. And one is like, what are the statistics of what it means to be extreme and how bad are things? And in one sense, it's very interesting because you can sort of quantify just how bad things are. So by some measures, there were only five others in history that were worse than this enormous Pacific Northwest heat wave Uh, in 2021. And then people are sort of quantifying exactly how bad the recent European and UK heat waves were and how bad that is. And honestly, from my perspective as a journalist, that seems to be just kind of like figuring out the numbers for like how bad something is, you know, like we know they're bad, right? How bad do we have to know? But then I guess the more important thing is the message that a lot of climate scientists are trying to get across that, number one, the most important thing to do is for society to cut emissions. And beyond that, how can we start to adapt? How can we start to introduce practices into our daily lives that allow us to survive these extreme heat waves? And in terms of adaptations, then what sort of things then are being discussed? Certainly when we live in a city environment, it can be really, really hard to find any respite, for example. There are a number of cities around the world that actually are very proactive about developing heat plans. So when you've had a really bad heat wave, you can start to prepare to not have it be as bad the next time. For instance, in France and across most of Europe in 2003, there was a heat wave that killed tens of thousands of people, perhaps 70,000 people. And as a result, a lot of changes were introduced. And in 2006, when a heat wave came through, it wasn't nearly as deadly. Now, these things are super easy to do. It's like introducing cooling centers in a city. So maybe you keep a library open that's got air conditioning and people who would be on the streets otherwise are able to come in and cool off. These things have huge impacts on people just being able to make it through a heat wave. 
There are other cities that do this really well. So Phoenix in Arizona is the hottest major city in the U.S. It's in the desert in the Southwest. And they've done a lot of simple things like putting shade at bus shelters, introducing, you know, recreation centers where people can go and cool off. This is also true in Southeast Asia, particularly in India. There are a number of cities that have adapted heat action plans. And again, really straightforward things. Keep the park open, close stuff down that doesn't need to be open. Very common sense approaches that reduce death tolls significantly. And it seems from what you're saying there, Alex, that some of these measures were put in after the fact. What about planning in advance? Are scientists modelling where future extreme events might be more likely to occur so that steps can be taken there? Yeah, so there's places around the world where extreme heat is common and we know it's going to get worse. So again, some of the sort of tropical cities in Southeast Asia. But Western Europe is an interesting case study because they had a very bad heat wave a couple of weeks ago and they've had a number of heat waves this year already. And over the last couple of years, records have been broken somewhere in Europe every single year for the last couple of years. And there's a new study that we talk about in the feature where Western Europe was identified as being basically a hotspot for heat waves. Sorry for the not really bad pun. Essentially, the jet stream that comes across the North Atlantic splits into these two strands and the the breakup of that jet stream into these two strands allows uh, heat waves to develop and persist over Western Europe. And the bottom line is that extreme heat is increasing in Western Europe three to four times faster than at other comparable places around the Northern Hemisphere. And what of the future? Alex, as these extreme heat events become more frequent, it looks like the trend really isn't going in the right direction. It's definitely not. And everything sort of lies on how we manage to bend that line of emissions downward, right? So if we're able to bring those emissions down and keep that temperature increase down, then that will help bend that curve away from these extreme events. But it feels like we're in this little sort of interim point right now where, you know, we are experiencing some of the most dire consequences of climate change and we can still do something about it. And maybe one example is just this week, the U.S. Congress, the Senate passed a major climate bill. And in the reporting, a number of people are saying that some of the politicians, some of the senators might be starting to be swayed by these extreme weather events that they're seeing. So it's hard to draw a line between you know this particular heat wave and the Senate passing this climate bill. But there is no question that as we live through these record shattering events, that it's having an impact, I think, on people's conception of climate change and politicians' willingness to do something about it, finally. Alex Whitsey there. To read her feature article, look out for a link in the show notes. And that's all we've got time for this week. As always, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.